Support for Talking Heart on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. Support also comes from the estate of Margaret Skinner, a longtime friend of WVIK and lover of the arts. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking today with Ross King, an internationally best-selling author who will be giving two upcoming lectures at the Figgy Art Museum next week in conjunction with the French Modern Exhibit. Good morning to you. Good morning. So, Ross King, your, your first talk will be on Sunday, November 4th at 5.30 p.m. and is entitled The Heroism of Modern Life, Edouard Manet and the Impressionists. What was so unusual about Edward Manet and how he approached painting? Well, in some ways, the clue is in the title of the lecture, which is um, modern life and modern life that could be construed as heroic. Uh, because generally, in, when Manet started painting right at the midpoint of the 19th century, uh, what you painted were certainly heroic scenes. But heroism, uh, for art at least, was in the past. It was scenes from... French national mythology, uh, possibly the most recent thing you might get away with painting would be the Napoleonic Wars or scenes from the French Revolution. But more especially you painted things like biblical scenes or scenes from ancient Rome from which uh, one could extract uh, sort of stories of patriotism. But Manet decided that he was going to do something quite different from that. He was going to paint people in everyday dress. So he was going to get rid of all of the, the models who made their careers wearing togas and biblical costume and armor and things like that. And instead, what he was going to do was paint people in top hats, frock coats, or without any costume whatsoever, which was often done. Uh, but the figures that he painted in the nude were not ancient goddesses or nymphs, uh, mythological nymphs, things like that, but rather what he was painting were naked women, women who were, I guess, who were naked rather than nude and who were um, were prostitutes or women of, of dubious morality that, to be sure, one found um, in the brothels of Paris and places like that, but things that were not really fit, or at least uh, the powers that be deemed them not fit to be for the, the French population to be looking at when they went to an art museum or a jury um, exhibition such as the Paris Salon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting because the Impressionists now seem so familiar to us, but what made them very radical in the 1860s and 1870s was, 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 was several things. It was the subject matter, like you were talking about, but there were also very marked technical differences. That's absolutely true. The uh, The other thing that Monet uh, and Manet and all of their friends did besides uh, painting scenes that, uh, you know, the great French academic painters, as they're often called, these sort of heroes of the French salon who had long and lucrative careers painting Greek goddesses and Joan of Arc and figures like that. Uh, Manet and company, uh, painted people that were different, people from everyday walks of life that you would see, for example, in the streets of Paris in the 1860s and 1870s. And then crucially, as you point out, they painted them in a different style. Uh, they painted them not with the, the sort of minute 
intricate, infinitely delicate, and to be sure, very beautiful brush strokes that people like these heroes of the salon. Um, I'll be showing a few images of these paintings so um, in the, the lectures so you can appreciate them or, or you can boo them if you, if, if you please. Uh, people like Alexander Cabanel, um, who uh, painted the birth of Venus. Um, they, these uh, beautiful images of women lolling, uh, lolling on the beach, um, uh, which were painted with great detail, incredible accuracy. Um, and it has to be said with great, uh, great amounts of expertise and talent. But that was not a game that Manet, Monet, Renoir, Paul Cezanne, all of these people who we now know as the Impressionists, that was not a game they wanted to play. They wanted to compete on a different field. And therefore, what they began doing were exhibiting uh, what looked like very messy sketches compared to these very finished, very polished, large canvases that the heroes of the Salon put on display. Um, and therefore, one of the criticisms of the Impressionists in the early days, at least, uh, was that they these were men who simply could not paint. Um, or in fact, it was sometimes said there were men who had very poor eyesight um, and couldn't see the world properly and therefore couldn't paint it. Um, or another and even more, um, uh, I think, uh, bitter uh, criticism was that they were men who were insane um, and that they they had sort of nervous diseases and things like that. And that's why they were painting um, in this particular way. Mm -hmm. But of course, none of those criticisms were valid. And they just had a very different aesthetic vision fr from the one that came before them, from the one that their, their artistic parents and artistic grandparents had been perfecting for the previous couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a quote in your book where you said uh, one of the Impressionist painters said that there must be something else in painting besides exactitude. Um, and I loved that phrase because they 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 did paint so differently. They 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 thickly slathered on paint, um, in, in you know in contrast to this very um, delicate, very fine application. That's um, right. And one of the other things that they did was they were experimental, not just in the the, the style of their brushstrokes and things like that, the sort of technical aspect of painting, where they would maybe use a thicker brush in order to create more texture and a texture you could see. They would in some ways almost begin sculpting um, on the surface of the canvas with their paint and using the paint itself. Monet especially in his later paintings in the water lilies, for example, did this where he would layer up 15 layers um, of pigment in order to create a kind of sculptural vision, something that was, on, was really three-dimensional um, on his canvas, which is very different from that extremely smooth surface that you get on these other paintings of the, the people who came before them. Mm -hmm. But what else they did uh, were, was used new pigments. And so th this was a great scientific period that they were living through in the middle part, later part of the 19th century. And chemistry was moving ahead and pigments were moving ahead along with that. And things like cobalt violet, uh, new colors, often very bright colors, were being invented at this time. And if some of these earlier painters were loath to use them, they thought these were far too bright. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from the 19th century is where someone says, a good painting like a good fiddle or a good violin he's talking about should be brown. In other words, a painting an old it should aspire to be what a, an old master was, a, a Rembrandt that was several hundred years old at that point, 
which had the kind of patina of varnish and age and everything like that over the top of it. Um, and so, and therefore it was very understated in its pigments. Whereas what um, Monet, Renoir, and uh, to a lesser extent Manet, because he usually used darker colors, but these other young Impressionists use very bright colors in their paintings. And one of the criticisms of them, and I think maybe we have to take the critics at their word when they complained about this, but one of the criticisms was that they got migraine headaches and felt nauseous when they looked at some of these paintings because they simply were not used to seeing these bright swirls of color uh, that come in these paintings. And you referred earlier about the way in which it's difficult for us today to appreciate how controversial they were and how disliked they were by, it appears to be large uh, swaths of the, the, the French critical community and artistic establishment, uh, because we embrace them for the most part. I mean, we love their paintings and they're among the paintings that I think uh, we feel that uh, are easiest to love uh, simply because of their beauty and their bright colors. And yet that, you know, 120, 140 years ago was something that shocked people. They simply were not used to seeing that sort of chromatic explosion um, in the paintings that the Impressionists have given us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had talked about the scientific advances and and the invention of those new pigments. And because they were um, created, they did allow that explosion, like you said, like and, and allowed Monet to paint more effectively the patterns of light. And I think that that appearance of light, it really does captivate us. Um, now, even to this day, and it's, it, it's, it was so, um, it was so radical and so new. Um, In many ways, what they were trying to do, Monet especially, was uh, was to capture those visual effects. If what was important in these earlier paintings by people like uh, the the paint, the great the painter with the enormous reputation that I discussed in my book, The Judgment of Paris, uh, Messonnier, um, if what he was looking for uh, was to show a kind of heroic action in his paintings, he was a painter of Napoleonic battle scenes primarily, and he painted them with great in fact, rigorous exactitude, not just in terms of he would put every blade of grass into the painting, he would put every sinew in every horse, he would have all of the buttons on the Napoleonic soldiers absolutely correct, he would make sure that he had the right uniforms, all of that. For him, that was what was important, to get things like that right. And I think we can still appreciate much of that today. His great painting is now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, um, uh, 1807 Friedland showing Napoleon's great victory over the Prussians. And it's a, in many ways, it's an absolutely wonderful painting. And I'm always pleased to see a group of people standing in front of it, almost wishing, I'm sure, they had magnifying glasses so they could scrutinize the attention to detail that Messonnier had when he painted it. That was what was important to him. That was not important to the Impressionist painters. Um, you gave the quote about exactitude not being all that important. Uh, One of my other favorite quotes is from Manet, where in one of the few painting lessons he gave anyone, because he really didn't take students, um, unless they were extremely beautiful, in which case he did take a couple, um, including um, one of them, Eva Gonzalez. Um, He taught, um, he said, if you're painting a salmon, 
Um, so if you're doing a still life of a salmon on a plate, there is no need to paint each one of the scales. Uh, Messonnier, if he was painting a salmon, and he did occasionally do still lifes, would have painted every single one of those scales. But for Manet and for Monet and everyone who came after them, it was much more notional that what you wanted to get was a kind of um, experience, not just of the slab of salmon on the plate with all of its scales represented, but what you would actually see if you came into a room in a late afternoon, maybe into a kitchen, and a salmon was sitting on the sideboard ready to be cooked uh, with a few uh, herbs beside it or something like that, um, and you would uh, just take a glance at it. And you would what was would be very important would be the ambience uh, to someone like Monet or uh, Renoir. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't getting everything inch or millimeter perfect for them. It was really just capturing the um, the atmosphere or what Monet called the envelope, the, the envelope of, of light around it. He said, I'm not just painting the object, I'm painting what's between me and the object. So what was between him and the haystack, what was between him and the water lilies that he was painting, what was between him and the facade of the cathedral that he was painting. And so it was a, just a very different game. He was speaking a very different artistic language than painters had done really for centuries earlier. Mm-hmm. And that's really the basis for their name, Impressionist, because they were painting that that first impression of something, which that's kind of, I think, rather beautiful. Now, now you've published this incredible book, The Judgment of Paris, the, the revolutionary decade that gave the world Impressionism. And, and in it, you weave together stories of, of the two different artists you were just mentioning, Ernest Masonier and Edouard Manet, and contrast their, you know, really significant personal differences as, and really the and this war, if you will, between the kind of older, rigid guardians of the past and these younger innovators. How did you come up with the idea for your book? I had wanted to do a group biography. Um, Previous to that, my books, I uh, did a book, Brunelleschi's Dome, which was on Filippo Brunelleschi working on the Dome of Florence Cathedral. Um, And so I was really concentrating on a single figure Um, working against uh, political hostility, artistic envy, all of these things, which was then a template I took to my next book, which was um, uh, Michelangelo and the Pope's Ceiling, where, again, I had a heroic figure, um, Michelangelo, working in Rome on the vault of the Sistine Chapel, painting his fresco with everything that was going on around him in Rome at that time, which really impeded him or made his job difficult. And I thought rather than do another book, which was just on a lone heroic figure struggling against his time and struggling against a group of enemies, I wanted to do a group of friends, a kind of group portrait of people. And I'd always been interested in uh, the Impressionist painters, um, not least because of the fact that I love so many of their paintings. And I thought it would be wonderful to do this kind of uh, a an art book for the the general reader on them and sort of take them through the first years of their career. And what I began discovering um, was that as I read about them, especially in the contemporary documents, what came more and more to the fore was a name of someone that I knew of, but in a very different context. And that, of course, is the name Messonnier, um, who was the 
um, the, just a little bit older than all of them. And he was the great French painter of the 19th century um, and a, very much an opponent, an active opponent of the Impressionists when they started. And I thought, I've sort of got a perfect storm of conditions here. I've got my group of people, Manet and the people who then gather around him in the 1860s. And then I've got the figure um, who isn't just a fall guy um, uh, because he, I think he's worthy of study in his own right. But Messonnier was the enemy. And so I had these two opposite poles of art, as they were actually called at that time, Manet and Messonnier. And it was, there was the wonderful coincidence of them both having the initials E.M. Edouard Manet and uh, Ernest Messonnier. And the fact that they, because their surnames ended with M, their, their works were always shown together in the Paris Salon, where all the M, all the names with the surname M went into a particular room. Um, and, and, and that included uh, so Monet as well. So thrown into competition with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it was really fascinating because that included Monet as well, as which well, is yes. wild to think <laughs> that Manet, Monet, and Masonier were all exhibited in the same salon room. That's right. And it, I mean, it's interesting that uh, today people confuse uh, Manet and Monet. And someone recently sent me a cartoon. I can't remember where it came from, where two old, obviously, French painters are sitting um, in a an old folks home. And one turns to the other and says, uh, am I Manet or Monet? I always forget. <laughs> uh, there's this wonderful tradition of the two of them being confused. Um, and that went back right to 1865, uh, when they were both really starting out in their careers. Um, Manet had a head start. He was eight years older. He was born in 1832, Monet in 1840. But in 1865, they both showed their work in uh, the, the salon, and they were both in room M. And people came to Manet and said to him, wonderful paintings, you're getting great reviews, you must be delighted those seascapes you did are, are fantastic, best thing in the show. And he thought, hang on, um, there are, I didn't do any seascapes. I did Olympia, this prostitute lounging on a daybed, and yet I'm being lauded for doing seascapes. And of course, the seascapes were Claude Monet. And, and so that, that's really when the two of them met, when, when they were confused uh, because of that. And initially, I think Manet was a bit suspicious of Monet, he said, who is this imposter who's, <laughs> who's stealing, trying to steal my fame or trying to steal my infamy, which is what Manet had in the, the mid-1860s, rather than any sort of positive fame. Mm-hmm. That that point just there that, that you made um, about the confusion between the two um, is a great example of just the minute and fascinating details of the painters' lives that you outline in your in your book and and also just of the historical events of the time. How how did you conduct your research? Oh, with uh, great pleasure. I mean, the, the, the research is, I love writing, but in some ways the, the business of writing, the process of writing is always a bit of a compromise because you have to, um, well, just to give an example, I think The Judgment of Paris and my book on Monet, Mad Enchantment, are both around 120,000 words or so. Um, and so, I mean, they're fairly you know, substantial books or average length books, at least. Um, but for uh, each of them, I have over 300,000 words of notes. So I've got a, a process of piling up all of the research, all of the stories, finding all of these anecdotes in the journals at the time, 
uh, which, if I'm lucky, have not been seen since they were written in the 1880s or 1890s, uh, sometime like that, and then being able to bring them forth uh, to the public and trying to find those little bits, those interesting anecdotes, which, even if they're not true, and I always spend, I always sort of gauge the um, uh, the potential veracity of them and let the reader know if we should trust this or not. But even if they're not true, uh, there's a, you know, often they will tell a higher truth or the fact that people believe that, believed at the time that they were true tells us something about the person uh, against whom they were told. Right. But correct. But how did you, where, where did you access these journal records and all the personal letters from one person to the next and, and newspaper articles? Where did you find those? Um, the uh, many because the impressionists are very famous uh, now. Obviously, a lot of the letters have been published. Um, the uh, with Monet, a lot he Monet wrote a lot of letters. Far he lived much longer than Manet did, um, and so uh, um, all of Monet's letters um, have been collected um, by um, Daniel Wildenstein um, and published in the nineteen eighties. Um, I had to translate them because they're only in French, um, not in English. A few of them have been translated in various uh, much smaller editions. But the other thing that I had access to uh, were French newspapers, um, which uh, someone like Monet especially uh, was always willing to run in front of a journalist and tell his story or let a journalist come to his house. And the journalist in Giverny, of course, outside of Paris. And the journalist would then describe his house, what it was like, and we would get a few words of wisdom from Monet himself. And so that sort of primary source for me was absolutely essential. And when I wrote uh, The Judgment of Paris, I wrote uh, some 10 years before I wrote Mad Enchantment on Monet. And in those 10 years, technology moved far enough forward that for the Monet book, I was able to sit in my office, sit in my studio um, in rural England and access the Bibliothèque, Bibliothèque Nationale in France um, and read the newspapers online uh, because they've scanned virtually uh, uh, virtually the entire collection. Um, and part of that collection are all of the 19th century, 20th century newspapers um, and yeah, to some extent, that's fantastic. I, I kind of envisioned you <laughs> sitting in the basement of some French government office trying to trying to translate these. And, and, and you did the translation yourself, then you must be fluent in French. Um, I wouldn't say fluent, but I, I grew up in Canada, where theoretically, you catch French on from the backs of cereal boxes and milk cartons from the, the time that you're a kid, because everything in Canada is bilingual. Um, and but I did, yes, yeah, studied at uh, French university. I did French immersion, um, uh, and I've spent a lot of time in France. Uh, so I can, um, with uh, with assistance uh, from a dictionary and things like that, and also from French friends, um, find out um, proper meanings of things um, and and work my way through. Not nearly as easy for me as English, but uh, I'm able to do it. And I actually enjoy doing it because I think it's nice. Uh, the act of translation of turning something from one language into another and taking something uh, that for English speakers or English readers would not have been intelligible and sort of then giving it to them is, I think, uh, a sort of um, uh, very uh, 
what uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A kind of heartwarming thing to do for me that I feel that I've made a kind of contribution to someone else's understanding of someone like Monet if I can take his words from an interview and then render them into English. It's almost like interviewing Monet in English for an English language newspaper or something like that. <laughs> well, there were many forces um, occurring at the time, just not just in politics, but social upheaval. There were economic changes, scientific advances all happening at this time. Do, do you think that we are most creative when our world is shifting around us? Um, or in other words, was, was Paris just really that, that perfect environment for, for this type of monumental change to occur? Well, one of the things that I've noticed with all of my books, um, and this is a, you know, I'm, I have a, a small self-selecting group here that I'm looking at um, when I, I talk about my books, but it seems I, I always look for great artistic moments that come about um, in times of great political stress and also personal stress in the life of the, the artist or artists I'm writing about. And so I think if uh, someone were to arrive from another planet and only read my handful of books, they, they would get the impression that great art always must come out of a great political ferment and revolutions and people being killed, explosions. Someone once told me in every single one of my books, there are explosions. Um, and that just uh, uh, happens to be because of the fact that every there are wars in all of the books that I write about that impinge on the characters that I'm describing. And then secondly, um, these great events would seem, great artistic events would seem to come out of great um, personal turmoil on the part of the artists, whether it is one of my other books is on Leonardo da Vinci working on The Last Supper. And he did that um, during a time of great personal stress where he had his dream commission taken away and had to begin working in the refectory in the convent in Milan very much against his will and then finished it up as the French army was coming into Milan. And so, and, and began it when a French army was coming into Milan as well. And so it, it's, I'm not sure that I, you, you could, I'm sure a lot of good art is created in peacetime, but maybe I'm, because I'm a storyteller and like to tell, um, you know, let's face it, wars and revolutions, if you're a historian, they're a great thing to study because they're um, eventful. And I think when you find a society at a stress point where its values are being tested to destruction, its aesthetic values, as well as its moral and political values are tested to destruction, that's a very interesting moment. And I think maybe a kind of critical mass is created at that point. Mm -hmm. So those are the moments that I'm attracted to, certainly. Um, and uh, in the past, at least, I'm happy, happy to write about them. And maybe for the present, um, I'll say that maybe this is one um, silver lining in everything that, uh, you know, the contempt we're, we're facing um, today that... Uh, Possibly this is just grist for artistic mills and things like mm -hmm. that, that um, art will move on um, in spite of or even because of all of the political difficulties that the world experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, now your second lecture, which will be Monday, November 5th, um, is a talk based on another best-selling book that you wrote that's entitled Mad Enchantment, Claude Monet and the Painting of the Water Lilies. C can you describe this time towards the end of Monet's life for us and, and the 
various challenges he was facing. Yes, this, I mean, if Judgment of Paris is the beginning of the story, uh, so the start of the Impressionists, um, in uh, it starts in 1863 and sort of takes them to 1874 when they first come together and exhibit as a group. Mad Enchantment tells the end of that story when Monet is the last man standing. He was the last of the original group of Impressionists uh, to die. He lived to a ripe old age. He died in 1926 at the age of 86. Um, and what I do is take the last 12 years of his life. Um, my story begins in um, 1914 and it ends with his death in 1926. And so he goes between the ages of 74 and 86. And what's remarkable about those 12 years in his life is that he was in many ways at his most creative. I discuss a little bit in the book the way in which nowadays people who uh, look at artists talk about um, the when artists do their, their best work. And for any listeners who are hoping to write a masterpiece or, or paint uh, their great, greatest work of art or write a poem that's going to be remembered for centuries, the key age seems to be 37. So if you're above that, um, you, the, the, the possibility of you doing that dwindles apparently each year. But there that's, are, of that's course, really all sorts of glorious to it's too exceptions late for me. <laughs> to that. And Monet is, I think, one of the greatest because all of the large-scale water lily paintings, if you think of Monet as a painter, you might think of some of the earlier paintings he did of the environs of Paris, but probably most people think of his massive water lily paintings. And he did all of those, all of the ones that are six and a half feet high by 14 feet or 29 feet or 40 feet wide. He did all of those when he was in his 70s and 80s. Um, and those um, really for the past century, most of the past century have been regarded as his greatest works and are ones that really um, moved the needle on much post-war, uh, post-World War II art and were the ones that had the most influence. Uh, that he did. And so it's remarkable to think that someone like Monet, who from his early 20s was a very innovative, creative, influential, and important artist, if Monet died at the age of 30 or 40 or 50, he would still be remembered today for those early paintings. Um, but he lived into his mid-80s um, and did what is arguably his best work in those last 12 years. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about those last 12 years of his life, I said the story begins in 1914. And I'm sure people will perk up and say that is when World War II began, when France went to war, when England went to war uh, with Germany. Um, and, uh, and so that is obviously a big part of the story. And one of the things that fascinated me about the paintings um, was simply the fact that Monet was working on these images of tranquility, which is, I think, how we often think of the water lilies. He was working on them during these years of when France really was staring into an abyss, uh, when uh, um, you know a million French died in the Great War. And Monet, of course, was well aware of that, as I discuss in the book. His son, his sole surviving son, at that time had gone off to the front and his stepchildren also were fighting. Um, and so Monet was very aware of everything that was going on um, and was sitting beside the pond, almost shutting the war out and painting. 
Yeah, I, I, it's it's really amazing to think about that. That with with the brutality of that war, but he was also widowed. He had suffering from cataracts and the loss of the loss of vision. That diminishment of vision for an artist would be particularly hard. Um, yet he was becoming really radical, and he was veering towards abstraction, which I think is really amazing too. He was continuing to grow as an artist. That's right. He. I mean, you could argue that some painters develop a style when they're in their 20s or 30s, and then they stick with it. And you can't tell uh, you know, a painting that someone did in his or her 50s, 60s, 70s from something they might have done in their 20s or 30s. Whereas Monet, as you say, became his late paintings are very different from his early ones. And obviously, it's 50 or even 60 years later uh, when he was uh, doing these paintings. If he first exhibited publicly in um, uh, 1865 at the Salon, had his work shown then when he was 25, he lived another 61 years after that and continued to show work. And so of course he was his, his artistic style was bound to change. And it changed in part because of his physical limitations. Um, as you point out, his eyesight was beginning to fail at that point. And the story uh, begins uh, with uh, him losing his, or fearing that he was going to go blind because he developed cataracts in 1912. Um, he uh, I was saying earlier about how difficult it is for many of these great artists when they're working on their masterpieces. And for me, that's one of the maybe reassuring things about them or one of the, the takeaways we can have from this that uh, great art can come out of their great personal suffering and that, um, you know, if as, as someone said to Claude Monet in the, the 1920s, if you are suffering and still can work, uh, then I can do it too. I'll keep going because if the great Claude Monet um, is having difficulties, as he certainly was, uh, then I can press on as well. And Monet certainly had terrible difficulties in those last 12 or 14 years of his life. His second wife uh, died in 1911. His first wife died when she was quite young. She died in 1879 uh, when he was in his late 30s and she was even a bit younger than that. He then married a second time and she really was the love of his life, Elise. Uh, but she died in 1911 uh, and he was devastated by her death and actually stopped painting for about a year saying that the, the painter in me is dead, all that's left is the inconsolable husband. And so what he decided that um, uh, he would, would do would be to down brushes at the age, he was 71 years old at the time, he would stop painting um, and um, probably would have died quite soon afterwards. But his friends rallied around um, and ultimately he started painting again, but of course then discovered that he had cataracts. Um, and um, he thought this was then going to bring an end to his painting career. But he did, over the next decade, learn to live with this disability. Um, and he somehow accommodated his painting technique and his way of looking at the world and his way of looking at his canvas in order to um, accommodate this difficulty that he was having with his eyes. As I describe in the book by about 1922, his eyesight was bad enough that it was clear he was going to need an operation. Uh, but for the most part, he went for a decade um, with somewhat limited eyesight, um, and yet he was able to work with it and, and, and make it work for him. 
Yeah, that's it's just it's just amazing to think about. There's so many uh, there's so many poignant details that you talk about. I'm I'm sure that after you concluded a a book of this size, you were it's probably sad to say goodbye to it. Um, I think I'd read a quote somewhere that you said Monet died for me too soon. I was sad when the research was over. Or some something along those that's lines. That's right. The, uh, all of my other books, I did not really take the person through to their natural end. Um, with my book on Filippo Brunelleschi, the story ends in 1436 when he finishes the dome and he lived another 10 years. Likewise, Michelangelo lived many years beyond the painting of the Sistine Chapel. And so I just sort of would have to kill him off in an epilogue and say that yes, in 1564 he died. Um, then uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, likewise, in my book on uh, the Last Supper. He lived for a couple of decades after he finished painting that. But this was one where I actually then had to go and, and take us through to his deathbed um, and really take the, through the suffering he had maybe in the last year or so of his life when he was getting progressively older and weaker. Um, and all of his friends knew he was dying but and everyone around that bedside knew he was dying except for Monet. Um, and so, yes, it was very difficult to write those passages um, because I had been sort of living and working with him for over three years at that point, and it was sort of communing with him on a, a daily basis, reading interviews with him, uh, reading his letters, writing about him, trying to get inside his mind. And then I was sort of faced with the prospect of killing him off and uh, sort of then going to his funeral and... Uh, and being present there with all of his friends. So um, it's, I've got a friend who writes history uh, books and, and she's always pleased to kill off her characters because she says, now I'm getting to the end. But I think I'm the opposite, um, er, at least in this case, because he was an old rogue. He was very cantankerous, very egocentric, um, and maybe not the easiest person by any means to live with. Um, but he was a one, you know, he was a, he was a character. And so he was a, a great person to spend those three and a half years or so um, in many ways living with and, and, as I say, trying to get into the head of. Mm -hmm. I love that whole idea of, of uh, communing and living with this person that you're, um, that you're really portraying to the world and often in a new light with uh, new anecdotes. And um, so that's, that's great. And really your books to me, just the, the fusion of the, these different genres, like it's part biography, part history part art history um you know and and when i uh, saw this first book of yours i assumed your background was in art history but curiously you you had a PhD, you have a phd in in english literature how, how did you make that jump from english well, literature yeah, I mean, to my, art history my career has had no real plan to it in some ways and it i've been diverted onto different paths i suppose if you um and when i was 15 years old, he'd shaken me awake in the middle of the night and shone a, a, a light into my face and said, what are you going to do when you grow up? Confess. I would have said, I want to be a writer, which is what I am. But I would have meant I wanted to be a novelist. Um, and in fact, I was a novelist. But before that, as you say, I went down an academic path um, and spent 14 years in um, various universities studying and did some teaching. Uh, but at the end of those 14 years, uh, the uh, jobs seemed to be quite thin on the ground. And so I thought, well, I'll go back to my 15-year-old self and take up that dream of 
being a novelist. And, and my first two books, therefore, are novels. Um, and I think in many ways, what I had to do in the course of those two novels is unlearn some of the academic techniques of, of writing and, and, and academics inevitably, no matter what, you know, whether you're in the arts or the sciences, you're writing for a smallish group of people, specialists in your field. <clears throat> and I think writing novels, then I had to learn how to write for a much wider audience or try to capture a wider audience. And I think I then took that. My third book was Brunelleschi's Dome, and I've only written nonfiction since then. But what I try to do with the nonfiction is create, well, have all the things that I think I look for um, in a novel, uh, which is plot, character, action, atmosphere, color, all of these things, um, and good, just good stories. And so everything that I tell is true, uh, but I just try to tell it in a, a compelling way, uh, simply because of the fact that it is, I'm, I'm trying to share this knowledge of I th who I think are interesting people living in interesting times um, with a wider group of people than had I stayed on the academic path um, I would have been looking for. And so it's just a very different kind of audience. And um, yes, yeah, so it was uh, the, the, the lack of opportunity in the academic world sort of ejected me into uh, the market as a writer. Um, and so I've been doing it for over 20 years now. Um, and touch wood, I'll, I'll keep doing it because I, and I very much enjoy this kind of creative nonfiction or whatever kind of handle you want to put on it. Mm -hmm. Well, we're certainly fortunate that your career path took you in this in this other direction because your books are just absolutely enjoyable. And, and uh, we are so excited to have you here in our community. And I hope that many of our listeners will get to attend one or both of your upcoming talks. Ross King, thank you so much for talking today. My pleasure. Thank you. You are welcome. Ross King's first lecture will be on Sunday, November 4th at 5.30 p.m. at the Figgy Art Museum and is entitled The Heroism of Modern Life, Edward Manet and the Impressionists. That will be followed by a second lecture on Monday, November 5th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. over lunch on Claude Monet and his late life painting of the Water Lily series. You can register for either lecture at figgyartmuseum.org. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal. Thank you.